Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. It's one of the biggest tourist attractions in the region. We talked to Peter Armstrong, the new president of the Mystic Seaport Museum. And if you're 65 years and older, it's time to review your Medicare policy for 2022. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Eastern Connecticut has many great tourist attractions, and with the coming of COVID, they were affected along with everything else. So imagine you're faced with that scenario, and you've just been given the job as the top new executive at Mystic Seaport Museum. That's what happened to Peter Armstrong when he became the museum's president nine months ago. And I sat down with him recently to talk about that and what's happened since. So nine months you've been in office. How's it been for you? Because you took this position on. COVID was at its height. It's still around. So what challenges did that cause? Well, nine months I could have had a baby by now. But I've, uh, it's been a kind of a bit of a whirlwind, really, because obviously with COVID, we never knew what was happening next. Masks on, masks off, vaccinations happening, what we can do, what we couldn't do, how many visitors we could have through. And then we got a... Uh, free entry for all Connecticut school children throughout the summer as well so we've really had to I hate to use the word pivot because everyone uses the word pivot but we really had to think at all times be as flexible as possible to get ready for whatever the next thing that was going to come our way because we weren't sure so uh, you know the staff really have been incredibly good to be able to get get us we had meetings inside right we better do this and we better do it tomorrow and that's been going on really. Tell us a little bit of your history before you came here. I mean, what sort of like got you interested in this part of Connecticut and why were you interested in this particular position? Because, I mean, you've got a great background, obviously, in this type of work. So just tell us a little bit about you. Well, as you can tell, I'm not from around here because I'm from originally from England, like yourself. So I was in England about 10 years ago or so, looking to decide that my probably final job would what was that going to be and where was I going to go to? I'd had my, I had been director of the Royal Armouries, which meant I had responsibility for the Tower of London, which sounds very exciting, but after 10 years it was kind of what's new and what's on the horizon. And just before we carry on mm-hmm. with that, I mean, those are huge museums. They're huge tourist attractions yes. in the UK. For anybody yeah. you know in America here listening who hasn't been to the UK, those are massive things that people go yeah, to the see. Yeah, Ro- the Royal Armouries is the British collection of arms and armour from 1066 onwards. Most people think of it as Henry VIII in his armour and his jousting, and we have all of those objects, all the royal objects, but they have everything and anything with many, many large museums across the UK. So I was director there looking for something new, thinking I should maybe think about going abroad and working somewhere else. So I thought, uh, you know, I, I assumed I'd be going to Canada or South Africa or one of the, or Australia, one of those Commonwealth countries. But a job came up in Virginia in the Jamestown and Yorktown Foundation. This is a foundation that looks after a museum in Jamestown where the English first arrived and then 20 miles up the road, a museum of the American Revolution where the English got kicked out after the Battle of Yorktown. So I went over there and helped develop that museum and bizarrely became the director of the American Revolution Museum in Yorktown and I did that for about seven years 
and then this position came up but interestingly enough I really wanted this position because Mystic Seaports is internationally known so in the UK I was looking about where I could go and this one kind of made me, me interested because it has everything that I enjoy doing which is making things interesting for the public and using live performers and people to do so so it was a really interesting project and but but unfortunately or fortunately for him there was already a president and then when I found out that president was retiring I made the application about two years ago now and then I started uh, about a year ago. It's a long process, isn't it? I think sometimes people don't realise that, you know, when you go for these, these great positions, they're not like a quick couple of interviews and, you know, and no. you give your month's notice. I mean, they can no. take a while. Yeah, it took about six I mean, I'll tell you from when I moved from England, it took me a year to get the job in Jamestown and then a year to get the visa in which to come to America. So it was a two-year process for that one. But this was Zooms and discussions and presentations, etc., etc., until eventually I was interviewed by the staff and then a decision was made and I was offered the position and I was able to move. I actually drove up here on New Year's Eve from Virginia because I thought that would be the quietest time to drive through New York, which was. And then I arrived here on New Year's Eve and started working from there. So then what sort of challenges were you faced with? Like I said, you've got this amazing job, the president, you know, like the top person here at Mystic Seaport Museum. But then, of course, you've got the whole COVID thing that you have to deal with. And, of course, you know, event spaces and museums, they're closed down or they're, you know, having restrictions because of everything that's happening. I think think the biggest challenge is kind of ramping back up to be able to, to manage and provide a quality visit for the visitor. Because COVID, we were closed for a period of time. We laid off about 70% of our staff and you restart and you can't bring that 70% back again because there's just not the visitors coming through the door and the money that you've lost the previous years and we're a non-profit so you know we're not kind of rolling in cash to make some of those decisions. So you have to decide on who comes back, who doesn't come back, which areas do you actually open, which areas don't you open and of course that can cause cost. Lots of controversy both among the staff but also among the local community because they want to see you back to where you were before COVID and you just can't do that yet. So we're just slowly developing certain areas. The other big shock for me was the, the size of the place. I mean, this has got 133 roofs, I'm told, 133 buildings, but also all the historic ships. So from one end of the museum, you have a, a historic dockyard that's, that's probably one of the premier wooden ship building in the world. So you've got guys and girls down there that are building fantastic ships and repairing one of the few places you can actually repair ships so ships coming from all over the country to be repaired and at the other end you have a fantastic library and a collection of about a million objects and a million photographs all telling the whole history of maritime history in America and with academics in there who's you know whose job it is to sit there and look through the archives and make decisions and be really skilled academics so very different types of people right across the board we're sitting out at the moment on the deck overlooking the Mystic River, the sun shining, I couldn't think of any better place to be. Let's talk a little bit more about, obviously, you know, the shipbuilding aspect and the repairs. I mean, like you said, they are world-famous, world-known for this. They've done plenty of repairs and modifications and all sorts of things for, for various wooden ships. How much has that been impacted by, you know, what's been going on with COVID? I think it's been impacted because many of those wooden ships are used for as restaurants. So they haven't been able to operate as restaurants. But they're starting to come back now. So there's a couple in New York that come up to be repaired in preparation. So people are getting ready for the next, what they hope is going to be a good season when we get into 2022. So there's been a lot of repairs going on at this point in time. But I think what makes us different is there's lots of these shipyards, but many of them are now kind of turning to these wooden super yachts, whereas we continue to do the historic ships. We're a non-profit, so we'll take 
things like the Mayflower 2 which we built here that's coming back to be repaired we'll do some uh, work on uh, the Shenandoah or the pilot you know 100 years old in fact we've just had the Morgan out and it was her 180th birthday so we just had her out and done some repairs on her before putting her back in the water again so we're very much focused on the historical element uh, which is unusual because it's not where the big profit lies but as a non-profit as a museum we want to make sure we keep those skills alive really getting on to this situation with regards to how COVID has impacted everything that aside you know when you're sort of like looking at doing one of these projects again it isn't a case of just quickly thumbing through the calendar and seeing like no. oh yeah next week you could bring it in I mean no. all of this takes a lot of planning. Oh yeah everything's about we're, we're, the order booths are up to about two years in advance and then of course the thing is that I always say to everybody with this museum you have a, a, a historical object that's very precious and very rare and then you put it in the water so when you get it out of the water, you're not sure what you're going to find. When you take away, you know, the, the guys say, oh, we just need to do a quick three-week repair. Then you get it out of the water and you realise that three weeks is turning into three months and, and so on. So that, that often happens as well. So, uh, so COVID is, we're, we're pretty lucky in the fact that the ship yard and the ship uh, builders and the shipwrights, we, we're finding them. Where we were having a problem with COVID, from staffing-wise, like everybody else, is finding people in catering, finding people in interpretation, finding people in, in that side that, that are coming back to work as well. We, so we, we thought we had it all ready for the summer with enough staff to be able to uh, manage the summer and then the governor brought in his, which was great, his free entry for kids and we tripled the numbers over summer. So this summer we would expect to do around about 50,000 and we did 103,000. So we had to be prepared for that number which is amazing of course like you said bearing in mind what is happening you know around the world you know with covid again i know we keep mentioning it but of course it's such a big thing that we're all still dealing with Uh, you know how much of a challenge was it because like you said it was nice of the governor to do that (laughs) museums obviously you know people wanted to get out clearly people wanted to get out they wanted to get back to places like this i mean to see this empty or or quiet nobody wants to see that so how much of a challenge was that well we were kind of (laughs) we're kind of lucky in the fact they were out mostly outdoors so and we're a large camp and we're a large site campus right across the uh, mystic river so a lot of people just wanted to come and wander and walk with their families and be outdoors so we we're able to do that but the challenge was things like we have like you can make a little wooden boat with your kids well we could only have 30 people in at any one time and instead of having our 1,000 people we expected to get we had 3,000 people so we had to you know we had to put timings onto that we had to we we still gave free entry on uh, we have these boats you can hire to row or to sail out on the river and we just contemplated whether we should charge for that but we decided no we're not going to do that because when you put a charge in it people tend to say well it's a long time since I rowed a boat and they wanted five dollars oh forget it whereas if you're free they go it's a long time since I rowed a boat but I'll give it a go so we got a lot of people out on the river a lot of people like just wanted to get the uh, fresh air in their hair and that worked really well so it, it was a challenge you know all of our staff I brought in that all our staff must be vaccinated, so all staff are now vaccinated. And when all of our staff wear masks indoors, and we ask the public if they feel comfortable to wear masks indoors, and where there's children, they must wear masks indoors. So, you know, we brought in these regulations, but we didn't really get anybody arguing with that. Actually, many, many people were very supportive. But as I say, outside and fresh air was great. We'll see how it goes when the winter comes. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, just like England, New England's weather is notorious, but we did have a relatively good summer, a little bit on the wet side. So, I mean, you must have been quite pleased that the weather sort of did, as you say, help. So you were able to at least get people out and about. It rained every time there's a federal holiday. That's what happened. 
So we would plan for the weekend, for the busy weekend, because it was a federal holiday and it rained, but it was like Memorial Day or Labor Day or whatever. Never mind. The rest of the weekends were really fabulous. Yeah, the weather was pretty good for us. You know, and, and I personally, I've lived through a New England winter because I was up here in January of this year and we loved it because we've been in Virginia for seven years and 100 degrees and 100% humidity isn't pleasant. My wife and I were really pleased that we could put coats on and woolly hats and get back into the snow. There is something to be said about having seasons, isn't there? And the there? seasons are massive, yeah. I mean, we're really looking forward to our first fall here in New England. And I was saying to some of my staff, you know, where should I go to see the best leaves? Where, what hotel could I stay in? Should I go here? Should I go? And everybody just said to me, don't bother, just go for a drive. So it's going to be really fantastic when we get to that. Let's get back to the other stuff that's um, here at the museum as well. Um, An amazing panorama inside one of your beautiful new buildings here. Talk to us about that, how it came about, and, and how's it gone down? Because it's, it's ginormous, and, uh, <laughs> and it's, it's something that's like, you know, you can keep getting people back to come and see. Yeah, it was kind of planned before I got here, so I can't claim that it was my decision to bring the panorama here, but we developed it so that, yes, you could move it. So just to give people an understanding of what the panorama is, it's well over a 1,000 feet long painting of a journey around the world on board a whaling ship. So there was a guy that came around, I'll make it simple, there's a guy that came around, went on a whaling ship, took some sketches, came back to New Bedford, and between him and another guy, they painted this eight feet tall, thousand, I think it's 1,300 feet long painting. And they put it on two giant rollers, and they would roll that, as, and as the painting moved along, they would talk about their adventures of sailing around the world. So there's lots of kind of what we call nowadays Easter eggs, where there were things in that painting that never really existed, but make a really good story. So as you're rolling through, you meet Robinson Crusoe, and you meet the mutiny on the bounty, and you meet things that this guy probably never saw. But think about it, you know, you're sitting there in an audience somewhere in New England, and you're seeing pictures of Hawaii and pictures of New Zealand, places that you have no idea existed. You've seen a volcano, you may not even know what a volcano is. So this was really like cinema in its very early stages. And so we have this huge painting on exhibit, and every two weeks we roll it along to the next exciting story, and we go through all of that, and we follow that particular tale as it goes along. And just to give you an idea of the size of it, if you were to unroll it and put it up there on its end, it's, it's actually taller than the Empire State Building. That's amazing. Yeah. And if I've got this correct as well... What you've done is, is is unique because previously somewhere else, I'm not sure if it was here in so like uh, New England, it was it was sort of completely unravelled. Yeah, it was in just... New Bedford. So it's owned by New Bedford Whaling Museum. It's actually it's their object, uh, but it was completely unravelled, which is nice to be able to see the whole thing. But you walk along it rather than it, it moves in front of you. And I think the difference is, and it moves in front of you. You, know, you can imagine there's going to there's like kind of a, some great storyteller, probably dressed like a sea captain, telling you the story as you as you move this along. And then there's items within it that we've come across that we've got the actual objects here in the museum. So uh, the the guy that Charles W. Morgan, who the Morgan ship is named after, the whaling ship named, he came and visited and saw this panorama show. And he writes about it in his diary, and we've got his diary to show that story as well. So there's lots of connections. And then right across the museum, we've been using, and this is what we're going to do in the future for our future exhibitions, they won't be based just in one room. We want the whole exhibition to come alive with them. So the panorama, we had a whole music that showed from Cape Verde and music from Portugal, all those places that they went to. The Inside the planetarium, which is fairly unique for Sea Museum to have a planetarium, we did it so that every day, wherever the, more, wherever the ship was, 
we showed the stars that, that people on that ship at that date would have seen. So you could sit in the planetarium and see the stars that they would have seen in the various parts of the world that we're in and then talk about them as well. So a whole programme. How's that gone down with, you know, with the visitors? Because it's such a unique experience. A lot of effort's gone into it. Yeah, I think you've got to with the... Well, we've got to change the museum as you go along because we have about 12,000 members and you want to give the members a new experience. But also, you know, people who came this summer by far were saying to us, uh, oh, I remember I came here when I was a school kid. And so they were coming back again after 20 years. So we had to ensure that they didn't just come and see the same thing they saw when they were a school kid. So there's always change going on here, constantly changing things. And so when you came for the uh, panorama, you received a passport and you got a stamp in the passport to say where you were in the world at that point of the panorama. And then when we rode to the next point and you came and saw it again, you got another stamp and people collected the stamps. And uh, they still can collect those stamps as we carry on with the exhibition because we're not closing the exhibition until February so you've still got time to to come and see it Tell us some more sort of like secrets or things that we can look forward to because that's always good to say you know the the museum is one of those places that people just head to so what can they see? Well let me tell you about the events that are coming on then let me tell you a little bit about the direction that we're taking the museum in so here we are just about to start fall so obviously we've got Halloween coming up pumpkins everywhere so there will be a period and if you look on the website you'll find all the dates i can't remember off the top of my head but just look on the website and we'll be getting the uh, pumpkins we clean out about 800 pumpkins 800 kids come over a period of weekends and they carve those pumpkins and then on one particular period we put lights in them and create a, a walkway and you come back and follow that pumpkin trail around the museum so that's halloween and then we've got our lantern light tours, which everybody loves, so that really sells out, so you need to get the tickets quick for that. And that's basically walking around the museum with the, lit by lantern light, and we have storytellers, and we have music, and we have schmores, which is a, something I discovered coming to America. So we have all of those things uh, out for, like, a really lovely... Because this place, you know, it's beautiful during the day, but it's really beautiful when the evening comes. It is. You know, so it's really magical when you come around in the night. And magical is the word you should use, really, because that's what it is. But as a museum as a whole, what we're, the direction we're taking it in is to become far more inclusive. So we've just put on a whole exhibition all about people of colour that have been involved in the maritime world. We're starting a real programme of making sure accessibility is improved because, you know, it's very difficult. I hate when I watch a group of school children arrive, one of them is in a wheelchair, all the kids get on board the ship and the kid in the wheelchair can't. So we're going to be getting accessibility onto some historic boats for those and just improving that overall storytelling because we tell a very American-centric white story of the maritime world and there's a whole other story to be told. It's not the fact that we're being PC by telling that story. It's just they're really great stories, so we should be telling them. So we're going to be doing that as well. That starts much more inclusive events that we've had before, so there'll be much more campus-wide, I mean, by that. Earlier this year, of course, you had Amistad and um, the celebration of Juneteenth, so this is part of what you'll say. Absolutely. We worked with the Amistad. We've got about 300 people here. We We had a much more diverse audience when we had the free entry as well, so we want to make sure that those people come back and enjoy the storylines, you know, because... Africans and African-American and Portuguese and indigenous people have just got a... It's a maritime history. that They make the maritime history. You know, the sea connects us all when you look at where it all joins together. So we need to tell, and we are going to tell those stories because they're really great. And then when Panorama finishes, we'll be putting in an exhibition called Storyboats, and that'll be taking... Many people don't know this, some do, but many people don't. But across the road, in the Velvet Mill or Rossi Mill, there are 460 boats for the, probably the largest collection of small boats in the world. 
and they're not all just the same boat they're all very very different with their own very very different stories so we're going to bring those boats about 25 of the best stories and put them in the Thompson thing and allow people to understand things like the boat where FDR woke up and found that he had polio we have that boat we have a boat that brought refugees and uh, from Cuba we have a boat, a boat, one of those boats that they pedal, the first boat to pedal across the Atlantic. So boats that have got great stories attached to them, as well as uh, being fascinated uh, vessels in their own right. So that's going to go on next year. You have so many exhibits and things, you can't always put everything on display. So, no. of course, things are hidden away for a while, not because you purposely want to do it, but because you just have to find the time and the space to sort of, like, get them out. Absolutely. I mean, and COVID actually did this pretty well for a lot of museums. They suddenly realised that they couldn't loan from other museums around the world. So they went in their own stores and found stuff, put them on display and realised that the public really loved that as well. So there is a habit of some museums to say that what we have in our stores isn't as important. But for me, it's all about what are the stories we're telling them and how are we telling them. So we have an object. You may want to go on the Charles W. Morgan and know what its tonnage was and how many whales it caught and how fast it was and how far it sailed. But you also really want to know who sailed on it and what was it like to sail on it and why on earth did they sail on it? You know, why would a man decide that he wanted to take... Because there were all men. There were some women that went along as, as uh, kind of wives of the crew, but they're working men on there. Why did they want to work on a boat ship that was going to sail and probably not come back for four years and not get paid until they came back after that four years hopefully catch enough whale oil to be able to sell it and get paid a good profit but that's not guaranteed either so you know what makes a person want to do that that's a really interesting thing well, it's been great talking to you, and obviously it's nine months along, but we still say welcome Thanks. to New England, and we're so glad that you're here and that the Mystic Seaport Museum is doing so well. And all of this stuff that's coming up, not only now, but obviously into next year, sounds absolutely great. So, Peter Armstrong, President of the Mystic Seaport Museum, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for joining us on Connecticut East this week. Thank you very much. If you're 65 years of age or have a family member who is, then this next segment is for you. Medicare Annual Open Enrollment is here once again, and it's recommended you review your policy to make sure Medicare is working for you. I caught up with Laura Cruz, Director of Benefits Access for Senior Resources Agency on Aging, based in Norwich, and began by asking her about open enrollment. The open enrollment period is for those who are already on Medicare, meaning you already have your red, white, and card. You've already gone through choosing a prescription drug plan or a Medicare Advantage plan at some other point. This is your opportunity to examine your current coverage that you have through Medicare and determine if you want to stick with the same either prescription drug plan that you have for 2022, or maybe you're enrolled in a Medicare Advantage plan with drug coverage. You want to look at those options and determine if you want to stick with the current Medicare Advantage plan you have for 2022. So this is the option to switch to different plans or keep what you have. It's not for you to actually enroll into Medicare the very first time. Can you bring us up to speed on any changes for 2022? Yeah, and especially since, you know, COVID is still here. Um, you know, we're still talking about COVID and it's still around. Medicare still covers several items and services related to the disease, like the vaccine. During the public health emergency and ongoing, from my understanding, Medicare will cover in full your COVID vaccine if you choose to get one done. And so far and so forth, like diagnostic tests, 
Those are the tests to determine if you currently have COVID or not, as well as the antibody tests to determine if you have the antibodies from COVID. Those are still coverable services from Medicare and during the public health emergency are typically covered 100%. Other items of note that I think is a great way to do some preventative measures is cognitive assessment and care plan services. I just want to remind everyone that Medicare does cover cognitive assessments to help detect the earliest signs of cognitive impairment. Your doctors can perform this assessment during, say, a routine visit. You know, and if you're showing signs of cognitive impairment, Medicare also covers a separate visit with your regular doctor or specialist to essentially do a full workup, you know, like a full review of your cognitive functions and to confirm or establish a diagnosis like dementia including Alzheimer's disease. And last but not least, along the lines of preventative measures is things uh, considered what's called a blood-based biomarker test. These are screening tests for colorectal cancer. And in some cases, for many, you can get this type of screening process done once every three years. And while you're using or utilizing Medicare providers who accept Medicare assignment, those types of preventative measures are covered 100%. COVID-19 obviously is still very much around. A lot of doctors and specialists aren't as accessible. So how can people sort of like at least speak to their doctors in the meantime? While it may not be the best way you want to see your provider, because if you're like me, you want to be in the same room, actually able to sit with your doctor one-on-one, they are still performing what's called telehealth, where you can, in the comfort of your own home and the safety of your home, especially if transportation is an issue at this point, is you can still have a visit with your healthcare provider who will be able to discuss your needs uh, and issues that you may be uh, having at this point and, you know, moving on with ordering other testing and assessments that may be within your nature, your scope of services, what you may need. So you can still see your doctor. Unfortunately, for some, it just may be at that point where it may be through the telephone versus being in the actual office itself. How do they get in contact with Senior Resources Agency on Aging? You can reach us locally at area code 860-887-3561. Winter is coming, so think about preparing your plants and trees for the season. Green Valley Tree LLC can help prepare your trees to withstand heavy snow, ice, and wind with cabling, trimming, and removal. We also do pruning. In fact, we do it all. Call Green Valley Tree LLC today on 860-234-4041 or visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently. Residents and visitors to Connecticut can now take part in online sports betting and gambling as the state authorized the full launch of these services on October 19th. Rodney Butler is the chairman of the Mashantucket Pequot tribe, owners of Foxwoods Casino, and says none of this could have happened without the backing of the state. Governor Vermont for his leadership and his vision uh, in pushing Connecticut to the forefront of the gaming industry. There's only a handful of states in this country that have approved of online gaming, and it's his desire to make sure Connecticut is the front of the pack is a big reason for why we're here today. Matt Kalish is the co-founder of DraftKings, the gaming partner to Foxwoods Casino, and says people should gamble responsibly, and they have built-in safeguards to make sure that happens. 
because it's on mobile, because there's so much data around the behaviors, we're able to also proactively sort of detect when there might be some anomalous betting behavior, like something that doesn't appear healthy and take action, uh, even if the consumer themselves does not you know, initiate that. Both of the state's casinos and the Connecticut Lottery will be providing online wagering through their gaming partners to all adults 21 years and older. The USS Nautilus, the world's first nuclear-powered submarine based in Groton, got underway recently to begin a $36 million preservation. Captain Kenneth Curtin, the 53rd commander of submarine-based New London, kicked off the event proceedings. The commencement of Nautilus's long-awaited preservation and the very rare opportunity to see this historic ship free of permanent pier moorings and underway once again, even if not under the power of the atom. Navy veteran Gary Schmidt served aboard Nautilus from 1968 to 1971 and got emotional as he watched Nautilus being guided down the Thames River. Quite an experience. It uh, almost uh, brings out tears. Uh, you know, we all served so strongly on her and she's had such a history and to see her underway, even though it's with tugboats, is, is good to see again. Nautilus will be dry docked at Subbase New London, where the ship will undergo repairs, have the hull repainted and upgraded lighting and electrical systems over the next six to eight months. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East this week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening.